of baseball in the world is Miguel Cabrera, plays for the Detroit Tigers. In 2012, he won the Triple Crown, which means he led the league in batting average, home runs, and RBI, or runs batted in. It was the first time that had happened in 45 years since uh, someone that a lot of us older ones looked up to when we were little, Carl Yastrzemski had done it, Yaz had done it in 1967. Now, I want to add that I wasn't looking up to him in 1967. He was still playing in the 80s when I was a boy. Even though he's the best hitter in baseball, I have read that every year in preparation for the season during spring training, Miguel Cabrera takes 5,000 swings off a batting tee. The same thing you start boys and girls out on when they're little. Jason's told me he's heard the same thing about the other preeminent hitter of this era, Albert Pujols, 5,000 swings off a tee in preparation for the season. Cabrera hits off a batting tee every day, even though he's the best hitter in the world. That's repetition. Malcolm Gladwell has famously or infamously said, depending on your perspective, in his best-selling book, Outliers, that it takes 10,000 hours of doing something to really become elite at it, very proficient. That's repetition. The cliche goes that practice makes perfect, and it has become cliche because it speaks of repetition. The Bible talks about the same thing or the same things over and over and over and over again. That's not the preacher's fault. That's God's intention. It's repetition. Our subject this morning, as you've been able to gather, I'm sure, is repetition. Because that's what this passage is about. It's repetition of what we've already studied in John chapter 3. And it's repetition of what we've seen thus far in the Gospel of John, the first three chapters. It's a summary of sorts. A repetition of the message of John. And beyond that, it's a repetition of the message of the Bible. Follow along with me as I begin to read in verse 31. It says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony affirms that God is true. For God sent him, and he speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father 
loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Right off the bat, pun intended, what you find here is a repetition of Jesus. A repetition about Jesus. If you get tired of hearing preaching about Jesus, then I'm the wrong preacher for you. Jesus is the subject not only of the Gospel of John, passage after passage, verse after verse, but He is the subject of the entire Bible. As we've been trying to communicate to our young people for several years now during the summer, it's all about the gospel. In the immediate context here, what you find is a repetition of the previous passage that we studied last week. A repetition of the previous verse, to be more specific. You remember verse 30? You could look there again. John concluded that passage where his disciples were upset because the crowds were flocking to Jesus away from them. And he said, he referring to Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Our passage today is an explanation of that. Why Jesus must increase while John and all other people with him, including the followers of Jesus, must decrease. And in this explanation, we find repetition of five things about Jesus. First, we find here a repetition of the origin of Jesus. Look at verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Notice two phrases in verse 31. The first phrase in reference to Jesus is that he comes from above. And then there's a sentence in between. And then there's another sentence. And in that third sentence in the verse, you see the second phrase I want you to notice. A, a parallel phrase to the first one. At the end of the verse, instead of saying he comes from above, it says about Jesus, he comes from heaven. So there's repetition in this verse, right? Repetition about the origin of Jesus. But more than repetition within the verse itself, what's being communicated there in those two phrases 
is repetition from what we've already seen, from what we've already studied, from what we've already been taught in John chapter 1 through 3. Let's take a moment to look at how we've already seen uh, this wonderful truth about Jesus. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 1, the second phrase of verse 1, second clause there. It says about Jesus who is the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, or from before time began. Look down to verse 14 in chapter 1. The Word who was God and was with God and had been with God from before time began became flesh. And He moved. And He took up... Now, and He moved part isn't there. That's my addition. Some of you are searching the translation you have frantically to find that. The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed His glory. The glory is of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, the one who has been at the Father's side, this is about His origin, He has revealed Him. Flip over to chapter 3. And look at verse 2. This is a passage about Nicodemus and Jesus that we recently finished studying a few weeks ago. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus at night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. We know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. And incidentally, You may recognize that phrase from above better when you consider a more well-known phrase that's translated born again in chapter 3, verse 3. When we studied that, what did I tell you the literal translation of born again was? Born from above. Same language there. Look at verse 13 in chapter 3. Jesus said there, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven. Speaking of his origin, the Son of Man. So you have here in our passage today a repetition of the heavenly, supernatural, divine origin of Jesus. And that is contrasted in verse 31 with the earthly, natural human origin of John. Do you notice the contrast when we look at the verse again, verse 31? The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth, a reference to John himself, is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. That's an explanation of verse 30. The reason that Jesus must increase and John had to decrease 
was because Jesus' origin was in heaven while John's origin was of this earth. That's why Jesus must increase. That's why John had to decrease. And this contrast is true for all of us. Because the same contrast exists between Jesus and every one of us. His origin is of heaven, while every one of our origins is of the earth. This emphasizes the uniqueness of Jesus. In the same way that that phrase we looked at just a moment ago or read twice in chapter 1, the one and only Son emphasizes the uniqueness of Jesus. That phrase is most well known from John 3.16. His only begotten Son, His one and only Son, His one of a kind, unique Son. Speaking of contrast between Jesus and John the Baptist, you see another contrast in verse 34 of our passage today. Look there. The first part just says, For God sent Him in reference to Jesus. Now, here's the contrast when it comes to the sending of Jesus and the sending of John. Back in chapter 1, it speaks of John being one sent by God. But we all must recognize that the sending of John was far different from the sending of Jesus. Jesus was sent directly from heaven, from the Father's side. John was seen as a mere representative of heaven. In the same country as is true of, of all of us, we are sent too. But we're sent like John, not like Jesus. So the first thing that we see is repetition of the origin of Jesus. The second thing that we see is repetition of the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. Look at verse 31 again. It says, the one who comes from above is above all. Now skip the part about John and the earth and look to the last sentence in verse 31. The one who comes from heaven is above all. So there you have that phrase, above all, twice. Repetition there within verse 31 again. Repetition of the authority of Jesus. That's what it's speaking of when it says that Jesus is above all. Why is Jesus above all? Well, it flows or it stems from His origin, right? His origin in heaven. He's above all because He is from above. Because he is from heaven. That's why I think I'm better than most of you. Because I'm from Marengo County and you're not. At least most of you aren't. No. Just a joke. Jesus is from somewhere better than Marengo County. Way better. From heaven. And it places him above all. This is a further explanation of verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Why is that so? 
because he has authority over me. He is the authority even over John, certainly over us. This is repetition from what we've already seen in the first three chapters of John. Once more, let's take a moment to look at what we've already seen about the authority of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Look back to verse 1, chapter 1, last phrase in verse 1, and the Word was God. That's as authoritative as you can get, as you can be. God. Look at verse 8. John the Baptist, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, speaking of the authority of Jesus over John. Look at verse 15. John testified concerning him, and he exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me has surpassed me, because he existed before me. That's about the authority of Jesus. Look at verses 19 and 20. This is John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He did not refuse to answer, but he declared, I am not the Messiah. He's pointing to the authority of Jesus there. And in verse 23, when they pressed him and said, Then who are you? John said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I'm not the Lord, but I've been sent ahead of the Lord. Pointing to his authority. Look at verses 26 and 27. John said, I baptize with water, but someone stands among you that you don't know. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. Look at verse 30. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who has surpassed me because he existed before me. Look at verse 41. Andrew, speaking of him, says he first found his own brother Simon and he told him, we have found the Messiah, the anointed one. Speaking of the authority of Jesus, look at verse 45. And this is talking about Philip. It says, Philip found Nathanael, and he told him, We have found the one, the one that Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. We have found Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Look at verses 47 through 49. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said about him, Here is a true Israelite. No deceit is in him. And Nathanael asked, How do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. That's authority. Look at verse 51. Jesus then said in response to Nathanael's declaration, I assure you, you will see heaven open. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is authority. Look at verses 3 through 5 in chapter 2. The well-known story of Jesus turning the water into wine. Verse 3 says, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. 
And Jesus said to Mary, What has this concern of yours to do with me? Speaking about authority there. My hour is not yet come. And then Mary declares the authority that her own son possessed when she said, Do whatever he tells you to do. Verse 11. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee and he displayed his glory, which is another way of saying he displayed his authority. Look at verse 18 in chapter 2. This is after Jesus has gone into the temple and cleansed it, running everybody out. You remember? Turning over the tables, getting a whip out, running everybody out. So the Jews replied to Jesus, What sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, Destroy this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Speaking of his own resurrection, a symbol of his authority. And now go over to chapter 3, look at verse 28. The passage we looked at last week. John the Baptist, as his disciples are upset about everybody leaving them for Jesus, John says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, and I don't have the bride. But Jesus does. All passages about the authority of Jesus and so that's why I say what you come to in verse 31 is repetition of this theme, this truth that keeps coming up over and over again. Now we also see repetition of the authority in, of Jesus in verse 35 of our passage today. Look there. The Father loves the Son. Let me stop there just for a moment. The most well-known verse in all the Bibles in this chapter that we've been studying, and rightly so, John 3, 16, and the reason it's so loved is because it speaks of God's love for us, right? His great love for us. God loved the world in this way. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. And I hope every one of us understand that the reason God loves us has very little to do with us. It has everything to do with Jesus. The Father loves Jesus. He loves His Son, and He doesn't have to work at it. It doesn't take grace. It doesn't take mercy. It doesn't take forgiveness. He loves His Son. And what makes Him love us? It's seeing us through His Son. The Father loves the Son. And because He loves the Son, verse 35 goes on and says, and He has given all things into His hands. That's how much authority Jesus has. All authority. Everything is in his hands, given by the Father, and eventually everything will be placed under his feet, the Scripture says. So the second thing we see is repetition of the authority of Jesus. The third thing we see is repetition of the testimony of Jesus. And 
I take that from verse 32, the first part. Speaking of Jesus, it says he testifies to what he has seen and heard. Jesus' testimony is based on what he has seen with his own eyes and heard with his own ears. This is repetition from what Jesus had previously said in chapter 3. Look back at verse 11. This again is Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. He said, I assure you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen. It's a repetition of what Jesus went on to say in verse 13. Look there. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven. So when it comes to the things of God and the things of heaven, the one whose testimony we're to listen to is the testimony of Jesus because he's the only one who's been there and done that. I want you to notice three aspects of the testimony of Jesus from the passage that we're studying today. Uh, The first aspect is emphasized in, in what we've already looked at That is, that the testimony of Jesus is eyewitness testimony. If you're depending on a witness in court, whose witness do you think would be more powerful, more reliable to a judge or to a jury? One whose testimony was secondhand? or hearsay, or one whose testimony was eyewitness testimony? We all know the answer to that, don't we? It is hard to overcome the testimony of an eyewitness in any case unless the character of the eyewitness can be disparaged. But you can't disparage the character of Jesus. His, te- his testimony is eyewitness testimony. It's reliable. And it's certainly more reliable than the testimony of, of one who, who brings it from their own imagination. And when it comes to heaven and things of heaven and things of God, that's where a lot of people's testimony is coming from, their own imagination. A second aspect of the testimony of Jesus, I want you to notice, is that the testimony of Jesus is truth. It's truth. Because it's truth, it's it's also true. Look at verse 33 in our passage. It says, the one who has accepted his testimony, the testimony of Jesus, has affirmed that God is true. There's powerful implications there. Listen to me. To accept Jesus is to accept God. To say that Jesus is true is to say that God is true. But the opposite's true as well. To reject the testimony of Jesus is to reject God. To say that the testimony of Jesus is a lie is to call God a liar. The testimony of Jesus is truth. This is repetition from 
what we've already seen in the Gospel of John. Look back to verse 9, chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 9. says, The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus as truth, his testimony as truth. Look at verse 14 in chapter 1. The Word became flesh and he took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. The third aspect of the testimony of Jesus is that the testimony of Jesus is the very testimony of God. Now get this, the testimony of Jesus is the very testimony of God. What if you could call God as a witness on your behalf? That's what the testimony of Jesus is. Verse 34, for God sent him, Jesus, and he speaks God's words. Over and over again in his ministry here on earth, Jesus emphasized that when he spoke, it wasn't merely him speaking. That he wasn't simply speaking words that had originated in him alone, but he spoke on behalf from God his Father. He spoke his words. Verse 34 goes on to guarantee to us that the testimony of Jesus is the testimony of God It says we can have confidence that Jesus speaks God's word since he gives the Spirit without measure. And that's talking about how the Father had fully given the Spirit to his Son and John had already witnessed that at the baptism of Jesus, right? In the form of a dove or like a dove descending on Jesus. And this is in contrast to those who had the Spirit before the time of Jesus, before the time of the New Testament, they didn't have the fullness of the Spirit, especially in terms of having them all the time. God gave them the Spirit, selected ones for a time, for a season, to accomplish a certain mission, but not so with Jesus. To Jesus was given the fullness of the Spirit of God. He therefore speaks the words of God. And we've already looked at verse 35 in the text today, but this part about giving him the Spirit without measure is the context for verse 35 when it speaks of the Father loving the Son and giving all things into his hands. One of the things that he had given into his hands was the Spirit. And that's why Jesus would later say in the Gospel of John, it's better if I leave because then the Comforter can come. I'll give you the Comforter. A couple of Sunday mornings ago on Easter Sunday morning, we looked at the Pentecost passage in Acts chapter 2, and there it spoke of the Spirit being given to Jesus. And then in turn, Jesus gives the Spirit without measure. Listen, folks, the Spirit without measure to all of his followers. We possess the fullness of the Spirit in the same way that our Savior did. 
Well, this is repetition from the beginning of the book as well, that Jesus speaks the words of God. Look back to chapter 1 again. Verse 1, the very beginning of the book is this. In the beginning was the Word. And I want you to catch this. Jesus doesn't simply speak the words of God. He is the words of God. In the beginning was the Word. Look at verse 18 in chapter 1. No one has ever seen God. It would be impossible to know Him or know about Him. But the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him, and He's revealed Him in His life and in His Word. So the third thing we see is repetition of the testimony of Jesus. The fourth thing that we see in our passage today is repetition of the rejection of Jesus. What an awful thing to have to be repeated, right? How in spite of all these things that Jesus was, one of the things that characterized his ministry was his being rejected. And yet we see it, repetition of the rejection of Jesus. Look at verse 32 in our passage. It says about Jesus, he testifies to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one accepts his testimony. His testimony is as rock solid as it gets. Yet seemingly, no one accepted his testimony. Now that doesn't mean literally no one, because we're going to see in just a moment there were some ones who did. But overwhelmingly, the majority of people rejected the testimony of Jesus at his first coming. And in the same way today, in our big, big world, overwhelmingly, people continue to reject not only the testimony of Jesus, but Jesus himself. This rejection of Jesus spoken of here is repetition from what Jesus had said not that much before this in verse 11 of chapter 3. Look there again. Jesus said, I assure you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. Not just Nicodemus, but all those he represented, the religious leaders of Israel and the nation of Israel itself, they did not accept the testimony of Jesus. The idea or the theme of Jesus being rejected was introduced to us in chapter 1 of John. Look at verse 10, John chapter 1. It says about Jesus, he was in the world, world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In verse 26 of chapter 1, John said to those who were asking him who he was, someone stands among you, but you don't know him. They didn't know him because they didn't want to know him. 
And we see further repetition of the rejection of Jesus in the last verse of our passage this morning, the last part of it, in fact. Look at verse 36 in John chapter 3, our passage today. It speaks there of the rejection of Jesus. It says, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Look at it again. The one who refuses to believe in the Son. You realize that's what's going on, don't you? It's not an unconscious rejection of Jesus. It's a very conscious rejection of Jesus. It's a matter of people, in spite of all the evidence, in spite of what God has done to provide a way for life and salvation, people still refusing to believe and therefore not seeing the life of God or not having the life of God. In fact, it goes on to say, say that for this person, the wrath of God remains on him. Notice there, as we've already seen in, earlier in chapter 3, that the wrath of God is not merely something in the future. But for the one who rejects Jesus, the wrath of God is on them now. And that would be you refuse to believe on Jesus. Did you know that this verse, this part of the verse, was the text for the most famous sermon that's ever been preached in our country, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him, and the wrath of God is defined as a settled, holy displeasure of God against sin. Not just against sin in general, but against sinners. His wrath remains on them. This is repetition from what we've already seen in chapter 3. Look at verse 18. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned in the present because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And then verses 19 and 20, same thing. This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. The fourth thing we see is repetition of the rejection of Jesus. That brings us to the fifth and final thing we see here. A repetition of the acceptance of Jesus. Repetition of the acceptance of Jesus. I'm glad we don't have to end with the rejection of Jesus. But there are those, in contrast to the, to the majority, who accept Jesus. They accept his words. They accept him. I take this from verse 33 in our passage today. It says, the one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. So there were those that accepted. In chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus spoke about this. 
as he said that they, there were those who did not accept the testimony, but he says we, indicating that there were those who did. Look back to chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. I'm sorry, verse 12, in contrast to verses 10 and 11. After it talked about them rejecting Jesus, it says, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God. Verse 29, we see acceptance of Jesus. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 34, John said, I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. That's acceptance. Verse 35, again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. That's acceptance. Verse 41, Simon was found by his brother Andrew, and Andrew said, we found the Messiah. That's acceptance. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law. That's acceptance. Verse 49, Nathanael said, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. That's acceptance. We see even more of this repetition of the acceptance of Jesus in verse 36 of our passage today. Look at it as we, we wrap this up. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. In that verse, we see repetition of two related conditions here. One is that to accept means to believe. And the other is that through belief, one receives eternal life. Have we already seen the idea of believing in the gospel of John? Sure we have. The very first verse that we studied in John was not chapter 1, verse 1, but it was chapter 20, verse 31, where John talked about his reason for writing the book in the first place. He said, I've written about these signs of Jesus so that you might believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you might believe on him. In chapter 1, verse 12, it spoke of those who believed, those who received him through belief. In chapter 11, it said after he did that miracle of turning the water into wine, his disciples believed. We've also seen eternal life in the Gospel of John already. What you find in verse 36 today is repetition from verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 where it spoke of Jesus being the life, all life having been created by him. In verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will, will not perish but have eternal life. Chapter 20, verse 31, where he told his reason for writing, not only so that people would believe, but that through believing they would have life. I want you to notice one word from our final verse today about eternal life. It says, the one who believes in the son has 
eternal life. You ever thought about that? Eternal life isn't something you're going to get when you die. The one who believes has eternal life. So the fifth thing we see is repetition of the acceptance of Jesus. Now you may be wondering this morning, I get that, believe that, but where's the application? What do I do with a passage that's repetitious of things about Jesus? Real quick, let me give you two ways to apply it. First, would you with me learn and acknowledge the value and the importance and the necessity of repetition? I know that we all think sometimes that we've got it, but we never do. I know that we all think sometimes that we know it and we understand it, but we don't. There's always more. So the application today is to keep reading, keep studying, keep meditating, keep listening, keep praying, keep focusing, keep preaching, keep teaching, keep trying, keep doing. That's true of the Bible. It's true for the gospel. It's true as a church. It's true with the world. It's true with the lost. It's true in our marriage. It's true with our kids. It's true on our jobs that we are to continue hammering away bit by bit, piece by piece, that as children of God, we're to never quit swinging. And as you do, remember that God's doing something. Always swinging. The second application for us would be to embrace, as we notice, the superiority of Jesus. He must increase but I must decrease. And that's because he's superior. His superiority is seen in his origin and his authority and his testimony, and it's also seen in the fact that rejecting or accepting him is the difference between the wrath of God and the life of God. Jesus is King of kings, and he's Lord of lords. Submit to him. Live for him. What I'm really saying, if you want application today, live like Jesus is superior. Live like Jesus is king. Live like he's Lord. Don't just talk about him. In this message on repetition, I want to close with a repetition of the gospel. That's all this passage is. Jesus is Lord and Savior, but we're sinners. Jesus has lived a perfect life that we can't. He has died on the cross to take the punishment for sinners. He's risen from the grave to conquer death. If we will repent, that is, turn from our sin and believe on him, we will be saved from our sin. Have you turned from your sin and trusted on Jesus to save you? Are you turning from your sin and trusting on Jesus to save you? If not, 
do so today and make your life a repetition of this day after day after day for the rest of your life. Here's what life ought to be for us. Repent, believe, repeat. Repent, believe, repeat.